Hello and welcome to a special episode of the SPAC Insider Podcast on the pros and cons of domiciling a SPAC offshore. To help unpack this, SPAC Insider founder Christy Marvin speaks with Derek Dostel, a partner in the corporate department at Davis Polk, and Christian Nagler, a corporate department partner at Kirkland & Ellis. They discuss how proposed SEC rule changes could present new challenges to U.S.-based SPACs, and how recent court cases involving DSPAC's multi-plan and arrival could set new precedents. Which of those risks could be mitigated by domiciling in the Cayman Islands, and what are the downsides? Take a listen. So now, clearly, SPACs have seen a lot of changes in the past year in a variety of different areas. Um, but notably, the vast majority of SPACs used to file as Delaware SPACs. And in fact, many of the DSPACs that went public in 2021 and 2022 were domiciled in Delaware. But the most immediate issue we're currently seeing with the Delaware Chancery Court is this issue with dual classes of common stock voting, which has you know, thrown into question the validity of some of these combinations. However, for everybody listening, Derek, maybe you can give us some background on this issue and what it is, because it's definitely a little bit confusing for most listeners. Great to see you guys and, and be part of the discussion. So this was a what I would call a super technical issue. A Delaware case came out. It was in the boxed litigation. And it's important to note the sort of context of that case. It was uh, in the context of awarding attorney's fees and the courts were reviewing what happened in that case. But as part of that case, the court held that the Class A and the Class B shares in the capital structure of almost all DSPAC transactions were separate classes of stock, not series of stock for Delaware law purposes, and they should not have had a collective vote in respect of charter amendments that uh, that impact those uh, those classes of, of common stock. And it sort of threw into question a lot of the, the DSPAC transactions, which lumped them together into a single class for purposes of voting. So you'd go out and, and vote on charter amendment and collect the vote of class A and class B together. So after that decision came out, a lot of the, the corporate lawyers said, well, let, let us take a look at, at what we did in these prior deals. And did we have the class A and the class B voting together? Um, and if so, we've got a problem and how do we rectify it? So that's the sort of history there. I mean, the good news is there's a provision in the in the Delaware corporate law that, that permits a court to basically sort of wave their magic wand over the situation and, and rectify any issues if it if it deems appropriate to do so. And we saw a lot of the companies that had this glitch in their, in their sort of corporate governance structure leading up to their DSPAC transaction, go to the Delaware court, get the ruling and sort of rectify the issue. But it was a a bit of a kerfluffle for uh, for two or three weeks while we work this out. Right, but um, this doesn't affect every single SPAC, right? I mean, that's the issue. I, from what I understand, it's just a certain specific type of company filing, right, where it's Target versus Holdco. Maybe you can kind yeah. of like further explain that and how many DSPACs this actually affects. Yeah, so divide the world in two between Delaware and Cayman. So if you're Cayman or if you have a new hold co and you're not amending your charter in connection with the DSPAC transaction, you're out of scope. And we saw a lot of auditors and accountants and business folks sort of questioning, you know, what structure they had and and uh, and what sort of plumbing they had in place. So I think divide the world in two between Delaware and Cayman. Cayman did not have this issue. There wasn't this sort of uncertainty, um, sort of a, a further sort of, you know, feather in the cap of the the Cayman lawyers. And if you also were not amending your charter, you didn't have this issue. So it was sort of a, you sort of narrow the funnel down to 30, 40, 50 companies, which is still a big number, but it wasn't all, you know, five, 600 uh, DSPACs that, that occurred in the last few years that were sort of subject to this. So that it's a pretty narrow issue, but it got a lot of press and, and it got a lot of uh, news amongst the lawyers. And, uh, and we all had to deal with it and go into Delaware court and, and rectify where it was relevant. There's a decision tree, and Derek and I have been on the phone many times talking about it. So this all started when we switched SPACs 
to have a class A and class B. And that was a new development post the last round of SPACs. I think when that was done, not every SPAC actually said, well, these are just series that vote together to increase authorized capital. They just called them separate classes. And many of the SPACs done weren't clear that these were actually the same series. Many SPACs were, and, and you look at the development starting in, I would say, late 2020 into 2021, all those new Delaware IPOs, SPAC IPOs, made it clear that people actually do vote together. So the statute allows you to provide that in the certificate corporation. But then you go through this decision tree. Derek, we've been through this decision tree many times. Delaware came in. Okay, we're, we're told by the Cayman lawyers, not an issue in Cayman. You go to the Delaware. You're in Delaware. Okay, was the SPAC the surviving entity? of the whole transaction. If you had a new hold co, or you had what we often refer to as a target company, file the registration statement and be the top co-entity, then you don't have the problem. If the Delaware entity was the surviving entity, you continue down the rabbit hole and you say, okay, did the certificate of incorporation provide that they actually do vote together or did it provide that they're separate series of the same class? If no, then you look at, okay, what did happen in the DSPAC? Did you clearly, because there were DSPACs such as Boxed, Boxed actually eventually had in their proxy that they do vote separately. That was in, in response to the legal inquiry. So if you had that separate vote, then you're okay to increase the authorized capital. Then we had a bucket where you didn't have a clear separate vote but you got a majority of the outstanding Class A stockholders to vote to increase authorized capital. And then you have another bucket where you didn't get the vote. In those last two buckets, Derek, I think generally people have decided to go get relief in Delaware. That's right. Right. So so I've seen recently a lot of these DSPACs that do sort of fall in that bucket. They're filing petitions, I guess, with the Delaware Chancery Court, right, um, seeking validation. Um, like, for instance, I recently saw Larkspur, which combined with Zyversa, I think they have a court date coming up March 29th. So what happens then? So they'll have a hearing. It's going to be short. Um, I think the first hearings were, uh, interestingly, on President's Day. The little known fact, the Delaware courts are open on President's Day and they don't honor that federal holiday. That was the first set of hearings. And I think there were four or five companies that had the hearing that day, sort of sequentially. Lucid, Lordstown, a couple others. And there was a, a decision rendered by the judge in the Chancery Court overseeing these that sort of explained her reasoning, and she basically waved them all through. So I, I haven't heard any sticking points since that. That was almost a month ago. So I'd imagine that the, the upcoming ones that are still going through the court system are going to be waved through as well on the same reasoning, assuming the sort of same facts that Christian just went through. So I, I think for, from our perspective, it's a technical glitch that uh, is being fixed by the courts. And frankly, we're, we're sort of lucky to have that mechanic in there, but it would have been nice not to have been an issue in the first place. And Derek, I would, I would say the, on the mechanic of having it in there, I think the timing of the cadence of filing annual reports also helped. Because these companies, after the decision came out and boxed, they look at it and we're now end of January going into February and these combined company, the, the surviving companies wanted to file their 10 case. Get feedback from the auditors was this seems like you have an uncertainty here and not sure we can sign off on our audit with this uncertainty. So these, when they went to the court, they said, this is pressing. It's not something we can just quickly go fix with our shareholders, which is what the courts want you to do as a first resort if you have to do something retroactively. 
the courts will not just step in and say, okay, I'll fix whatever issue or uncertainty you have. Here it was because they were able to tell the court, this is going to affect the timing of the 10Ks because we'll all be delayed. That really helped the courts get to the decision. Because if you didn't have that pressing issue, it's a question of whether or not the courts would have been so quick to fix it versus telling you to first go out to your shareholders to fix it. I agree 100%, Christian. I also think it was helpful that a bunch of these companies were in capital raising mode and had ATMs on file and the lawyers couldn't deliver legal opinions, You know, corporate housekeeping legal opinions in these facts. I think you're absolutely right that the timing of where this fell in the year was probably front of mind for the for the chancery court and, and the fact that a lot of these companies were looking at financing transactions and being locked out of the ability to raise capital in the public markets would, would be a big issue for them. The takeaway, though, here, at least for the purposes of this podcast, <laughs> is that um, this didn't affect Cayman domiciled entities, right? Did so, not. And it, and it can be, this one issue can be fixed going forward in the SPAC IPO by just making the provision clear in the certificate corporation from the get-go, which which has started happening. But you're right, Chrissy, it is, it is an, an example of there's an issue in Delaware, not in Cayman. Right. Well, the other issue that we're going to get to, which is the 1% excise tax, which is probably the largest issue and the one that people are probably most aware of, also has the potential and already is actually probably going to push a lot of SPACs to Cayman domiciles, mostly because of income taxes. Maybe let's kind of start there. And just as sort of a refresher for people, Christian, maybe you can kind of bring people up to speed on on what the 1% excise tax issue is. Sure. So in order for the government wanting to raise more revenue, an idea was floated in legislation in 2021. It was in the Build Back America Better Act of, hey, maybe we should tax corporate buybacks. I think some of the theory behind it was if you return money to shareholders by way of a dividend, they pay income tax. Shareholders pay income tax, which is a higher rate. But if you do it by way of a stock buyback and the price gets driven up, then really people are paying capital gains if they then sell into the higher stock price. So that was that's, I think, part of the theory of people who came up with this. It seems to be the case from the chatter that when it was originally written, and it still stays this way, it only applies to domestic listed companies because our understanding is some of the foreign co- other countries out there didn't like the idea that there would be legislation basically guiding corporate finance decisions of buying back stock. So this was out there. Derek, if you remember, we did talk about it briefly. Um, Lawyers did talk about it briefly in 2021. I think it was like September. Clearly, in my view, it wasn't meant to be a tax on a return of capital back to shareholders. The idea was open market buybacks. So this issue actually goes beyond a SPAC redemption. It can go out to redeemable preferred stock. Someone puts in money, the stock is supposed to be redeemed, and all of a sudden the company has to pay a tax. So it actually went away because the Build Back America Better Act wasn't adopted. Then the new act came, and that new act in 2022 actually didn't have this provision in. So we didn't think we had an issue. And then in order to get all the votes together in the Senate, they had to get remove one tax, and they took basically, I would say, took this off the shelf and it got enacted. 
Right, right. And like the whole point was not to necessarily tax SPACs for redemptions. It just so happens that redemptions are considered a form of share buyback. And so they sort of like were inadvertently wrapped up in this, which left a lot of SPAC teams kind of like scratching their heads going, well, hey, like, are we going to be subjected to this tax? And no one was really sure how it was going to be applied to them. But there was sort of a rush for the exits before the tax was enacted as of January 1st, 2023. And so we saw a ton of extension votes and liquidations in December because of it. There was, if I remember correctly, it was like, I believe it was the last week of December when Treasury finally put out guidance and did seem to give relief on complete liquidations, but there is still this sort of gray area for partial redemptions. And then there's also the netting rule, but maybe you can kind of like briefly explain the netting rule too and how that affects SPACs maybe going forward. Yeah, I'm happy to jump in, uh, Christy. And uh, yeah, I agree, agree 100%. It was August of 2022. People were having summer vacations, et cetera. The Inflation Reduction Act passes. And then we're all sort of scrambling. Is there any basis to exclude liquidating SPACs from the scope of this language? And the, the language is clear. It picks up a redemption or repurchase. And as you know, when you affect a, a liquidation of a SPAC, there's an embedded um, redemption right. Um, and, and when the SPAC liquidates so that public shareholders get their pro rata portion of, of the trusting count. So we, we had a lot of SPAC clients and SPAC sponsors saying, well, what are we going to do? I think we should probably call a special shareholder meeting to have the unilateral ability to, to wind up the SPAC early before January 1st to wrap it up. So we saw a lot, a, a lot of SPACs do that. Um, there was a flurry of activity. And then sure enough, like you said, last week of the year or the second to last week of the year around Christmas time, some relief came out, published as part of a broader scope of guidance from the Treasury Department. So it was sort of, you know, we were hung, hung, hung there in purgatory for, for four or five months before, before we had that relief. Just on your point about the netting rule, so it's a more complicated analysis. I'm going to put my tax lawyer hat on for, for a second, even though I'm not a tax lawyer. There's a provision in there that basically says you can offset in the same calendar year redemptions that are made in connection with a business combination closing. So if you have a deal where, just take some round numbers, you, you have $200 million of redemptions, and you also issue $200 million of new capital in the form of a pipe or subsequently in the in the same calendar year, uh, you can net that and minimize the 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 one uh, percent tax that would otherwise apply on those two hundred million of of redemptions. Uh, this all assumes it's a Delaware SPAC. It's, it goes back to your theme earlier. This issue is not relevant for for Cayman or offshore 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 SPACs. You're sort of outside the scope, full stop. So it's an interesting sort of division between the approach for for Cayman SPACs and and Delaware SPACs. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously we're not exactly um, pricing a ton of new SPACs right now, but, you know, any new S1s or any prospective new sponsor teams that you both are talking to, are you recommending Cayman Domicile specifically because there is no income tax and therefore you wouldn't be subjected to any potential excise tax? Yeah, we have. We have been. We have. It's a, it's a good question. We have been and we have been before the excise tax for other reasons. The anti-inversion rules, for example, if you acquire a, a foreign business in the SPAC structure, it just takes the anti-inversion rules off the table and it just makes it easier from a tax perspective more generally. So yeah, it's, it's pretty easy from our perspective to sort of look to Cayman versus Delaware from a tax perspective and say, Cayman's going to be cleaner and give you more options at the back end. So the, the netting is not as easy as it seems, but you do get credit for what you issue in the DSPAC. But again, you have to look carefully at what entity is issuing what and what entity is doing the redemption. On this issue of Cayman SPACs, I think, Derek, you and I worked on a lot of Cayman SPACs before the excise tax. But you, I think the percentage of what we're seeing of new SPACs going forward is certainly trending to being incorporated in the Cayman Islands. 
Yeah, I agree 100%. Significantly. Yeah, significantly higher. I think our general rule of thumb was if you have a you know more than a 5% chance of doing a deal with an offshore business outside the US, then it makes sense to do Cayman. I mean, the only downside is you've got another set of lawyers involved and you've got the sort of overlay of the, the sort of Cayman plumbing. Most New York-based lawyers like Christian and, and me can form an entity on a same-day basis where there's a little bit more plumbing associated with forming, forming a Cayman entity. So I agree with you 100%. It's, it's certainly trending in that direction. And the other thing too is, you know, right now, like, what are you hearing just from working on these deals, maybe from the auditors that are also working on some of these deals? I mean, is there, do you expect further guidance from treasury regarding this issue? You know, maybe around partial redemptions, things of that nature. I haven't heard that. Um, I I think people are happy with the guidance that came out in December and are relying on it. I, I think it, it is only guidance. And I think there's some question about how it gets incorporated into final treasury department rules, but I don't think any on the substance, I'm not sure people are expecting too much more by way of guidance. I, I think I've heard the same as you. All right. Well, you know, the other thing I sort of wanted to talk about as well is litigation around some of these break fees we've seen as well. You know, we were sort of talking about this, you know, before we kind of popped on this pod, but you know, there's obviously a lot of money at stake in some of these deals. It is a little bit different, whether it's Cayman law versus Delaware law, but, but Derek, I, I know you have some experience with this. So maybe, maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So just to sort of take a step back, um, I think I think if you stopped a SPAC investor on the street and said, you know, what are you entitled to if the, if the SPAC doesn't do a business combination? They would say, I'm entitled to my pro rata portion of the trust account. The trust account is there for public investors. Now, think of a scenario where a SPAC, and there's been a lot of SPACs that have found themselves um, in this situation. Think of a SPAC that announces a business combination. The market's challenged. Minimum conditionality in the in the business combination agreement isn't satisfied, or some other reason um, impacts the deal after announcement, and there's either a hardwired break fee or some negotiated break fee to effectively have the SPAC terminate the uh, the business combination and go look for another business combination. And the question there is, who's entitled to any break fee? Is it the public shareholders? Is it a combination of the public shareholders with the sponsor uh, shareholders that, that hold the founder shares? And the language in the charter of most of these SPACs is quite clear. It basically says that Class B, I'm sorry, Class A shareholders, which are the public shareholders, have a right to the pro rata right to the trust account. That's why it's there in the case of a liquidation. And that fully extinguishes their rights. They're not entitled to any further liquidating distributions. That's what they bargained for. Now, that being said, there's some situations out there where there's a big break fee in cash and SPAC shareholders are saying, well, now, wait a minute. That wasn't exactly what we bargained for. You had an obligation to consummate a deal and, and we're entitled to a piece of that. But I think the technical, clear legal read of the of the docs in most of these situations is, is that they're not entitled to that. So we'll, it'll be interesting to see where that settles out. The Cayman lawyers have told us quite flatly that the language says what it says. And in the absence of ambiguity, that's what they bargained for. And the court's not going to look to anything else. It's a little less clear under Delaware. There could be some claims around fiduciary duties and settling the case for the benefit of stakeholders other than the public. But it remains to be seen. It's a really interesting area of the law, in my view. And we'll sort of see where these things play out. Yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting. I mean, just having talked to some of the investors around some of these issues, I mean, (laughs) they do do think they deserve part of that. <laughs> That's a tough fight. <laughs> and I get it that there's there's probably some nuisance value associated with filing a lawsuit and the numbers can be eye-watering in a couple of situations, like some eight-figure break fee. I think they've got a losing argument. The question is whether there's some settlement value. I, I, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see the way the pleadings and briefs sort of play out and how the courts ultimately decide. Um, because in some of these cases, you're unwinding the sponsors would otherwise lose, you know, five to 10 million, the public's getting their their shares back, but you just happen to have this break fee that's five to 10 million. So what do you, what do you sort of do with that? It'll, it'll be really interesting. 
I mean, I agree with you legally, probably not entitled to it, but you know, from an optics or marketing point of view, if they want to do another spec, I mean, <laughs> you know what I mean? That That's sometimes where it comes down to. I agree um, with that. I mean, there's also practical considerations too. What, what if you find yourself in a situation where the break fee is not in cash or it's not in cash today? What do you do then? Let's say it's in some high yield security that's in the form of notes that are denominated in big amounts. What do you cut it up and give it to the 29 million pu public shareholders? Like, you know, in some cases it really just doesn't even work. I mean, I think where it's ripe for litigation and where the courts need to step in is, is in the case where it's a big number and it's cash. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. We'll see. We'll see though. We'll see though. You can imagine a court flatly saying it's look at the language here. It is, it's clear and, and we're done. And, and that's where the Cayman lawyers have been. The Delaware lawyers have been a little, a little more equitable, let's say, and, and saying there may be a fiduciary duty at stake. You know, but but it's interesting. In all of these cases, there just seems to be a pretty bright line with, with Cayman, but with Delaware, it's very gray. Why is that? Like, what is it about Delaware law that makes all of these cases a little bit, you know, for lack of a better word, squishier? Yeah, I mean, Delaware's law is very rich. I mean, it's it's the it's got a lot of case law on a lot of different areas, and it's the preferred jurisdiction. And there's a lot of academic debate: is it a race to the top in terms of the model of corporate law that we should apply, or is it a race to the bottom? And you know, it's it's sort of an interesting question. I don't know to be honest. I mean, some of it has to do with the way that we look at you know the business judgment rule and the entire fairness standard under Delaware law. When you have a conflicted transaction, you apply an entire fairness standard, which is a much higher burden and it's difficult to prove. So some of it has to do with that. That's been going on for, for a long time in, in Delaware. That's not anything new. Some of it has to do with the fact that Cayman is just more bright line. The other thing I would note too is some of it has to do with Cayman just not having considered some of these questions over the years. Cayman, is, I believe, is a fee-shifting jurisdiction. So to bring a claim in Cayman, you've got to be willing to pay the other side's legal fees if you lose. So there's some disincentive to test some of this stuff, whereas 20 or $30 million break fee, if a lawyer has a 1% likelihood of getting a third of that, it may still make sense, even if in Cayman, they would have to pay the other side's legal fees to defend that. We'll sort of see where these things things shake out. But I, I do agree with you. And at least the Cayman lawyers are a bit more definitive on some of these topics. We have talked a lot about, you know, some of the benefits of Cayman at this point, but what are some of the challenges of a SPAC being domiciled in the Caymans? I mean, it can't be all, you know, roses over here. There has to be some sort of challenges to being domiciled in the Caymans. Um, you know, does it make cross-border transactions difficult? What are the negatives to being a Cayman domiciled SPAC? Well, it's generally viewed as making the cross-border transactions easier, mm -hmm. um, less structuring involved. It is, I think, historically a cost issue. There is the added cost of having another set of lawyers in there. So I would say that is why generally people have done it. I think there's also a perception that maybe we shouldn't be in Caymans because it suggests that there's something um, unusual going on here. It came in, Derek, we went through SPAC transactions where when we advise teams outside of the United States to go to Caymans, they would then say, well, Caymans is on a blacklist. We need to go to another jurisdiction. And in my experience, after looking at all the many other jurisdictions, they actually landed back on, I guess we're going Cayman because the Cayman law had at least developed enough and enough patterns in it that people knew it worked for a SPAC. Christy, one thing I was just wanted to address, because the theme here seems to be a little bit Delaware versus Cayman, which is really a domestic versus offshore, you can use that term. And the offshore SPACs were generally always Cayman, great, great percentage, like 95%, but also British Virgin Islands. And mm -hmm. U.S. was almost always Delaware. Once in a while, you saw Nevada. But mm -hmm. the trend, just a loose, loose analysis here, in 2019, 12% of the SPAC IPOs in the United States were in Cayman or BVI. 
It then in 2020, it moved to 20%. In 2021, it was about 35% from what I saw. And in 2022, it was just over half of our SPAC IPOs in the United States were of entities originally incorporated outside the United States. And I think what Derek and I are suggesting is we imagine this trend will continue. For sure. But, you know, just going back to cost, you, you did mention is a little bit more expensive to do it in Cayman. How significant is that additional cost? Like, can you put some numbers to that? I don't think it's probably just under six figures is my guess. I don't think it's, I think when you originally putting a SPAC together and with all the at-risk money the sponsor has to put in, in part for paying costs, sponsors historically, understandably, wanted to keep those costs down. Mm -hmm. So when you told them it was going to be, you have to pay another set of lawyers, even though it doesn't seem like a lot, that, that is what seems to get lost in a lot of this is sponsors are putting in real money here. And if a transaction doesn't happen, it's called at risk, they lose all that money. So when mm -hmm. we hear all the chatter of all the they did, all they did was put in $25,000. That's actually not the case at all. They put in millions of dollars and they lose that money. So in these liquidations, they're losing well beyond this $25,000. Right. I mean, all the all the at-risk capital, plus all of the cost of you know hiring lawyers, et cetera. Um, it's a lot of money. Agreed. Yeah, they pay um, upfront and underwriting fees. So there is a lot of money going into setting up the SPAC. For sure. There is one other question I did want to ask you about. Let me ask you this. When a SPAC team is talking to a potential target company, does the domicile of the SPAC make a difference? Meaning like if you're going in with a Delaware domiciled spec versus a Cayman domiciled spec. Do some targets care? Derek, I'm curious what you've seen. I have not seen the targets care. I do. Sometimes they say, oh, but they're Cayman. Is that a problem? I'm in the United States. And then you explain, not surprisingly, Delaware, the Delaware legislature made it very easy at the time of the DSPAC to go into Delaware. We always say come back into Delaware or re-domesticate, but we're actually not redoing anything or coming back at all. We were simply outside and Delaware made it very easy to come into the United States at the time of the DSPAC. Yeah. Oh, right. I, you know, I remember having this conversation with you um, about, you know, how much easier it is to go from Cayman back to Delaware versus Delaware to Cayman. Maybe you can kind of like one of you, Derek, maybe you can kind of like walk us through that about how challenging it is to redomicile from Delaware to offshore versus the other way around. Yeah. I mean, it's very easy to come to from from Cayman to Delaware. It's, you know, some paperwork and, and that's it. I think going offshore, there's the plumbing associated with putting a new hold co in place or new new holding companies, plural, in place and, and doing it structured as a sort of double dummy deal. The other thing that always plays into that decision to go the other way is tax. And I mentioned the anti-inversion rules earlier. If you have a Delaware SPAC and you're acquiring or doing a business combination with an offshore business, you've got to jump through the uh, the, the, the U.S. federal tax anti-inversion rules, which can be incredibly complicated. We've done it a few times, including on deals across Christian's team. So that's the other thing that comes into to play. I've played Christian on this one. I, I've never seen a target company and their board and their management team say, we don't want to do a deal with a Delaware SPAC, but invariably one of the first work streams that you kick off are sort of tax structuring, domicile governance. And the questions always come up as to if you're already offshore, it just makes the analysis that much easier. And we have seen some issues pop up with Delaware-based SPACs and the anti-inversion rules in particular. 
There are a few other topics I wanted to sort of address. One being the multi-plan case. Yeah, I'm happy. it's an interesting one. It's not new, but it also hasn't been the sort of um, you know wave of litigation that people thought it might. Let me just sort of level set on, on what we're talking about when people talk about the multi-plan case. So there was a decision by uh, the Delaware courts. There was a lawsuit brought by you know a handful of plaintiffs and, and plaintiff's lawyers basically citing a number of factors in the multi-plan case that said, you know, there were economic incentives to the board upstairs, you know, at the sponsor level, there were interlocking relationships with the sponsor, there were, you know, all sorts of sort of factors that that led the, the court to conclude this should be subject to the entire fairness standard. That's the higher standard above the normal business judgment rule. It basically resulted in in a lot of people saying, well, look, what, what am I going to do um, on my DSPAC transaction if I have a Delaware SPAC and I find myself scrutinized under the, the, the factors in the multi-plan case? So the one thing that I think is interesting here is with redemption levels being so high, you've got to find a plaintiff in the sort of stub portion of, of the public shares that don't redeem. And then only then are the damages, you know, accessible against that sort of stub period. So interestingly, as a result of the market turning south and redemptions being high, there's sort of a disincentive for that that sort of sliver of of plaintiffs to to bring cases under the under these this sort of multi-plan theory. So there there hasn't been the wave of there's been a couple of cases, but there hasn't been the wave of cases in the wake of multi-plan. But it is a friendly reminder to be careful about these relationships and what other factors might lead to that entire fairness standard under the Delaware courts. And it got a lot of focus when it when it came out. We haven't seen anything similar in Cayman. Like I said, a lot of the litigation's been in Delaware and under the Delaware laws, and it's it's arguably, you know, much richer jurisdiction for case law uncertainty, but it's an interesting case to keep in mind. And, and the Delaware courts um, uh, seem to have been drawing a, a bright line in the sand here with, uh, with, with conflicts in this entire fairness standard. One more case, <laughs> a rival where the plaintiffs said the banks are statutory underwriters. I'm going to throw that out at you. People may remember that about this time last year, the SEC came out with proposed new rules on SPACs. And it kept law firms pretty busy talking about it. Uh, Derek, you and I spent a lot of time talking about what was being proposed. Among the many things being proposed was a rule that if a bank underwrote, they actually made it broader than bank, but could they, I say they made it broader because they basically said eventually any institution could be deemed to be an underwriter. But the proposed rule was if a bank underwrote the SPAC IPO and then was involved in the DSPAC, that the bank would then have underwriter liability. And I think the reason the actual proposed rule is so incredibly limited, because they required a registration statement then on the back end was the proposal, is because I have to imagine that the staff realized that anything beyond that probably doesn't have a basis in the statute. And when the staff proposed that, the staff also said, oh, by the way, there are these cases out there. And it could be the case that a bank involved when you have a registration statement in the DSPAC, that's a distribution of securities. And if a bank's involved in any way in the distribution of securities, then they could have underwriter liability. It was even broader because jokingly, some of the printers asked if they're now underwriters too, how broad the statements were. But <laughs> with that, not surprisingly, it seems like plaintiffs have now jumped on something new of, hey, there's this dicta from the SEC of maybe um, the banks are underwriters, so let's sue the banks too if we're unhappy with the DSPAC. 
I just want to point out that I think certainly the American Bar Association took issue just with the statements that these banks are underwriters. I think all the law firms or large law firms that do a lot of DSPAC transactions also put in comment letters suggesting that that's not what these cases say. Uh, SIFMA also wrote pretty strong response to the SEC. So I think generally the, the view is certainly my view, probably Derek's view is, is I'm sure Derek's view is they're not underwriters. Nevertheless, somebody jumped on it in the arrival case and brought a suit that against the banks, suggesting that even if they weren't in the SPAC IPO, if they're any way involved in the DSPAC, they're statutory underwriters. And therefore, in order to fend back liability, they have to show that they have a due diligence defense. Derek, any did I get that right? 100%. 100%. It's, an, it's a really interesting case. I mean, it's an interesting argument. It's a novel one for sure. And it's not clear that it sort of sinks to 90 years now at this point of statutory underwriters and how we think about uh, underwriters with taking securities with a view towards distribution. So I don't know. It'll be interesting to see where, where this one shakes out. I think the people who are in the know, like you and me and SIFMA and the American Bar Association, all think it's it's founded on a very slippery rock and doesn't have any basis in the law, but you know, time will tell as to as to where the SEC comes out with their rule proposal, um, which should be soon, and uh, and where this this uh, this this sort of case goes in the courts. Yeah, I would add, Derek, that this is a little bit market shattering because when you hear this and the SEC makes the statements of what well, you could be an underwriter, this goes beyond well beyond SPACs because in regular way M and A. If one company's buying another and there's a registration statement and securities are being offered and banks are involved, the analysis, Derek, I don't know what you think, but really isn't any different. The same things are happening. And I can't remember whenever people ever suggested banks in those transactions and public company M&A were underwriters. So it's gonna be very hard to thread the needle here to say, well, they are in DSPAC transactions under this dicta, but somehow not in public company M&A. Totally agree. Yeah, it could have far-reaching consequences outside the SPAC space if, if that line of thinking is supported. So we, we think it's flatly wrong, but it'll be, it's, it's debatable and we'll see where the SEC and the courts shake out. All right, well, I think that's it. I, I really appreciate you both coming by. I think this has been a great conversation and I think everyone should hopefully get a lot of uh, information out of this and would love to have you back, as I said um, before, once the SEC rule proposal comes out. So looking forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much. Great to be on here.